I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast today. And today I have a good friend on today, Mr. Brian Wallace. He is the founder and CEO of Now Sourcing. Pleasure to be here. I'm unimpressed that I've only known Brian for maybe... Four or five months. I feel like I've known him for a couple years. Uh, met Brian at a tech event, and we kind of hit it off and kind of understood each other a little bit because a lot of people don't understand my narrative. And just wanted to bring him on today and talk about you know his world and what he does in infographics. How did that originate? How did that start? And where you're at now in your career? Yes, sir. So first off. Pleasure. I say a very similar sentiment. I feel like John and I have kind of cracked the code on how to get to a, quite a level of intimacy. I don't mean like anything weird. I mean like knowing a person better quickly than I think you get with a lot of people. And I think the reason for that is one, he and I are both on a similar kind of wavelength and we're kind of good at that. And yeah, just with a lot of people you meet, like they don't really necessarily have that gift. They kind of look at a flat two-dimensional plane. Here's how we do business. Here's how we network. Here's my business card. And that was not the first interaction of John and I. John and I were at a beautiful kickoff event for this tech event that he was talking about earlier. And rather than just like shaking hands and kissing babies and running for politics, he and I spent a long time just kind of talking about a far-ranging bunch of stuff that you probably wouldn't have interacted with somebody on first meeting them in a crowd of people, second, third, coffee, lunch, whatever, we went way further in a conversation than a lot of people do months or maybe a year or so in. So that's kind of how we got there. And I think, John, a lot of that I think is part of my story. I just, I feel like I've done the work as have you to understand what makes people interested, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not sales tactics or some sort of shtick that we're doing. This is like who we are at the core, but we've just spent the time and done the time. What, what do people find interesting? How do you have this ability to be interesting to people? And can you put that in a bottle and sell it? Can you put that in a bottle and make that work for your benefit and for your client's benefit online? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some people call that influence. I like to call it renown because I feel like the word influence has been ruined by influencers that sometimes get a bad rap. Well, I think it's, uh, understanding narrative. And I think it's understanding people. Um, and you know, you tell me, I talk about sensitivities, but I think you understand sensitivities very well and you understand people. So, you know, and you're originally from New York city area, right? Born and raised in New York. For those of you who are not familiar with New York. Um, so I know John's (laughs) representing with the Yankees hat, but, um, native New Yorker here, born in Brooklyn, But you'll notice I do not sound like a Brooklynite. I sound kind of like a suburban Northeasterner because I grew up in the suburbs and I've spent some time in the better part of the South slash Midwest. Now, we can argue about where's the South um, on that. Is Louisville South enough to count, John? I don't know. What's that? Yeah, yeah. 
You're in Cincinnati. I mean, you know, you, you towed the line, right? Nowadays we're in Cincinnati. Yep. Yeah. You towed the line a little bit there. So tell me a little bit about you. You grew up in New York, you know, looking back at your childhood, looking back at your teens. Yeah. Did you think you would be in infographics? No, because it wouldn't have existed for years to come. And I what what is um, what was your thought process at that time, career-wise, in, as a kid, t- in your teens and so forth, being in a big city, you know, um, you can talk about your culture a little bit, uh, however that represented yourself. Uh, yeah, what, does that, so what does that look like? Let's unpack that a little bit. So a lot of people, like, they see me at a conference and I stand out really quick because I have Yamka on in a conference of a bunch of other people that don't. So I just tell friends, it's like, oh, you know, like if I just stand here, everybody will know who I am because I'm like the Yamaka conference goer and I'm going to need to go get some kosher food or something. But I didn't actually grow up religious. Um, I did that later in life after a traumatic life event as a young adult. So growing up, I had quite a bit of a different worldview and I had a lot of different other career ideas. So I didn't start out as an entrepreneur. I started out in technology. I went to school for a long time, numerous degrees, and I thought technology was the thing for me. I mean, if you think about like the year I graduated college was 99, and that was like everything was soaring and the stock market and the dot-com craze was all the rage. I was just chomping at the bit to get out of school and go back to the Northeast and get into that zone. And I did for a little while before it all kind of crashed and burned. So I thought the future of the web had always been very interesting to me. I got to see the web at a pretty early age. I'm old enough to remember what the world was like before that. But for the longest time, I'm like, I think my career is going to be something to do with the web. I don't know what it is yet, but future of web has been an interest of mine for decades now. And I've thankfully been a practitioner of different varieties. So the first decade or so of my career, I actually worked in tech and I found that tech was incomplete of the way that I understand the world. Because like you said, I'm pretty good with people and you'll find that a lot of technologists are not. And I felt a bit uncomfortable there. A lot of people would never get on a podcast like this. They would have to have it scripted and they're just reading from a teleprompter, not reading from any notes here. Like, what am I supposed to have notes about my life? (laughs) So a lot of them, they're not good communicators. They understand like a very technological communication style where they could communicate with each other, but they struggle with getting other people to buy into their ideas, which is why a lot of tech projects they don't really know how to go forward. Uh, where'd you go to school, by the way? Sure. So I did my undergrad at Binghamton University, upstate in New York. Okay. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with New York, New York is much more than New York City. Half of the population lives outside of the city, all over the very large state. So this was relatively upstate. And I also got further master's degrees at Pace University. You go through college, you have understanding of what you think a job would be. And this is something I'm new to tech, even though I've been working with tech for a while now. You know, and when I got in, started talking to people and and started really understanding about functionality of product, the same people in tech were, you know, product, 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 right? What product? what they anticipate product to do, but they don't really know full functionality. When you came out of school and got into tech, was was that a learning curve? Did you recognize that? Was there, what was that coming out of school? Yeah, let me add a couple other layers. 
So I had a pretty weird curriculum of different stuff. I'd like to think it was well-rounded, but my first degree was not actually in computer science. I actually had a double major in, um, at the school they called it philosophy, politics, and law, or pre-law, and political science. So I had a lot of, I thought I was going to go to law school. I thought about doing like internet law, but I saw a lot of my friends as miserable lawyers. So I'm like, maybe I could just be an internet. So yeah. my first job out of school was with the government where I was kind of like a technology liaison to local government for a very prosperous place in suburban New York. What I like about the political side of stuff, I don't go off and do political podcasts and stuff, but I have plenty of thoughts and opinions that actually are based on quite a bit of knowledge and understanding the space. But what I like about that space, I really enjoyed a lot of stuff about the psychological elements of stuff, game theory, understanding how people make decisions. I find that far more fascinating than like straight politics or straight technology. I probably would have had enough credit to get a technology degree, but they didn't offer one as a BA. So I would have had to stay like another half year or a year to get like a third degree for no reason. So I was just ready to go into the market. But um, yeah, I think there's always going to be a bit of a learning curve when you go from playtesting life, AKA college into, okay, buddy, now it's time to pay the bills and actually do work for people. Um, so after my first job, I actually worked uh, straight into the dot-com industry for a pretty cool tech platform that uh, really focused on like home renovation and stuff like that. So I got to see a lot of different elements of tech. I got to do tech leadership. I got to do systems. I got to build a lot of stuff in my career, uh, working my way up into Fortune 500s. And eventually I made my way up to being a CTO for a small place. And I just, I couldn't stand doing straight tech anymore. And I wanted to run my own business. I wanted a bit more autonomy. I became religious. I didn't want to argue about Jewish holidays off or time off on Fridays. Thankfully, we have laws in this country like, where certain things are protected, but plenty of mm -hmm. other people can make your life miserable on stuff like that. And different people have different lifestyles and different things that are important to them. So I liked the idea of running a business. It's hard, but I think it's ultimately very rewarding to have autonomy over your own domain of the kind of thing that you choose to do. In that position, was that in design? Was that building a project? Were you Was the project yeah. done and then you tried to help facilitate the project? So I'm actually not a very good designer. I'm more of a communicator. So I am more of like a visionary guy that understands here is an idea. I can map it out and I can explain it to our elite designers on our team. But I'm more of the storyteller. I'm more of the communicator. I'm more of the guy who intersects with press. So I just, I like to visioneer things and then build a good team. I think that that is an important part that a lot of people leave out. Now, there's something you said that people should take note of. If there was an understanding of a personality, right? Because mm -hmm. yes. I think Brian's the type of personality that if you're going to have a conversation, the rationale is coming from facts, right? right? And sometimes, you know, or not sometimes, there's some personalities in tech that after studying human behavior, that's what tech is to me is studying human behavior, right. you can get factual and rational information to distribute to the world, right? That doesn't come from emotional place. How right. could we, how could we uh, pinpoint that in this world today? Because I don't think that's really recognized, right? right. That, that narrative of coming from a factual, rational place, expressing the right information instead of an emotional answer. 
How do we get people to understand the difference? Can people understand the difference? We teach people that most people are very much more the same than people make it out to be. If you believe everything you read in the news and politics, we hate, there's sides and we hate each other and there's no room for debate. But since the beginning of time, people have more in common than they don't have in common. And we all get together in social circles and coffee shops and talk about things civilly. So what changed? Because we're so sophisticated now and we have Facebook now. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like that personality is buried, right? One other thing. So I think a lot of people have strongly held opinions that they don't even know why they think this. So if instead of just using somebody else's talking points and having other people think for you, what even is that? Maybe think for yourself a little bit. Maybe hear what other people that aren't you have to say. I try to be a good global citizen of the world. Every day I talk to people all over the planet. They all believe very different things. But at the end of the day, they all want to have like a nice life. Something that I like to say that kind of proves this point. I like to say something that kind of sounds a little shocking and uh, should be a little unsettling. There are examples in the world of people that can be turned to something that is like legitimately like quite evil and harmful and can be redeemed to something that ultimately serves the good. So once upon a time, I was introduced to a very interesting individual by the name of Christian Picciolini. And we can refer to him and his TED talk in the show notes. I think it would be very helpful for people to watch this and understand his story. So once upon a time, he was the child of immigrants living in the Chicagoland area. And he's just a, a stupid teenager smoking a blunt, standing on a street corner. And a neo-Nazi comes over to him. I'm not going to curse on your podcast, but he says, put that thing out. And he says, the Jews and the communists want you to smoke that to keep you docile. And this 14-year-old impressionable kid is like, whoa, what is happening here? Like, what does that even mean? I don't think I've ever met a Jew before. The only communist I know is like the Russian guy in Rocky Four, who's actually not Russian anyway, which is hilarious. And he didn't even know what the word docile meant. But if you watch him in interviews, maybe like two years later, he looks like a dead-eyed murderer on news interviews. He became the leader of one of the most violent parts of the KKK in America. And later on, he was completely redeemed, disassociated from that. You know what he does these days, John? Blows your mind. There's a part of, there's a division of the government of Homeland Security that's called CVE, counterviolent extremism. I'm not saying anything secret. This is all stuff that's Google. Mm-hmm. So CVE's job is if there's like a bad guy who's ready to like blow something up like a terrorist, it's his job to like bring these people like back to the fold. So people, especially with the advent of how quickly information and thoughts and opinions can disseminate across the internet and social, people can be easily, easily influenced to something that could be very dangerous or very polarizing. And with people with the right intentions, people can be brought back and stepping away from that ledge. And I think if we all do a better job trying to understand each other, it'll be great. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that Christian goes on. I remember he was meeting this one guy and the guy was saying he like wanted to blow up a mosque or something horrible and like the guy's like 
oh, uh, I have to go to the bathroom a second. And he, like, calls, like, the imam from the bathroom. He's like, hey, I want to invite my friend over. And you think there's going to be, like, an altercation. And then, like, two hours later, they're all, like, hugging and friends and crying. Like, when people just get to know each other, they realize that they're just people that basically want the same thing. We all just, like, want a nice life for ourselves and our friends and family. If you're in a category, nobody was in that category until they made the word. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I think if you make things simple like that, um, yeah. people should really, really listen to that. Because I, I sometimes I use the the reference of, um, I can't remember his name, it's Kaluga, the biggest genocide in history. I think it's one of the biggest genocides in history. Yeah. It was in Kenya. I think it was in Kenya. So when he right. moved to this area, started influencing people. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Right. He took over the radio station. Right. And he was able to take that radio station under his control and manipulated a whole culture of people to kill another culture of people. You know, I think we sometimes make things a little more complicated uh, really? than we should when they are probably a lot simpler. These are conversations that people should be having instead of, you know, political interest of bad mouthing each person on either side. Digging back into your path after that first gig, did you go to Google after that or? Nope. So I joined the Google Small Business Advisory Council in, I want to say, 2016. That came way later. So just kind of dotting some of the experience. So decade, about decade one, it's all technology, had enough of technology, kind of had enough of the East Coast, if we're being honest. And my wife and I actually had a chance to visit Louisville, Kentucky um, two weeks before the towers fell. We decided to make that our home. And we came back to the South slash Midwest, depending on Talk about politics. Forget it. If you ask people where something is on a map, oh boy, and now you're really opening the can of worms. But in any case, yes. so I we got to the point where it's like, all right, maybe we can start our own business. And we thought about doing tech consulting and future of web and stuff like that. Now this is 2006. So 2006 through 2008 was a really interesting period of time for the world and for our business because the economy was melting down, the housing crisis, like tidal wave of the world. 
But that's when we worked really, really hard and developed a specialty being very, very early social media practitioners. And that delighted my mind because it was all of the stuff that makes people tick on like the human and emotional relational stuff and on all the technical stuff and algorithmic stuff. Um, one of the really exciting things during that time where it was the Wild West and we got to work with all sorts of really big, cool companies doing some of their first baby steps in social. There used to be a website called dig, D-I-G-G.com. Still exists, but it's very different. Back then, it was the show. If you had a piece of content and you curated it and it front paged, so many news sources, so many people would talk about it and cover it that your website would crash and would not be able to handle the load. That's how popular it was because it was such a fountain for the internet's everything. I mean, it was just wow. it was like the front page of the internet. It was almost like how some of Reddit is today, but with so many more people interested in it. What was really interesting about this, there were like a hundred individuals, just regular people sitting here that probably about 50% of the content that reached the first page was responsible from those hundred people curating it. And I was one of those guys. And I feel like a bunch of people started companies after that. And so we went from technology to social, but I noticed, so by the late 2000s, I'm like, wow, social is blowing up and going in so many different directions. It doesn't make sense to do everything to everyone. There's too many specializations here. So what are we good at as a small team? We're good at telling stories and understanding human emotion. We're good at the visuals and we're good at making things go viral or press or however you want to understand it. And back then in mid 2008, I saw maybe two or three people making these things called infographics, which were brand new. And I said, Ooh, now that is like the perfect alignment of everything that I'm interested in, how I see the world, how I understand the world. Because I think, so a lot of people love to over explain stuff and they, they talk at you or they talk over you. And if kind of like what we said about people on the different side of political aisles or just different opinions of things, do you ever win an argument like that? <laughs> no, of no. Course. no, you don't win an argument like that. Don't even try winning an argument like that. Mm -hmm. Take an idea and make that idea somebody else's idea. Because mm -hmm. like I said before, a lot of people have these strongly held opinions that they don't know how that they, they get there in the first place. So people have opinions that can be dislodged and replaced. And I don't mean that in a creepy way. I just mean, so imagine like we're just talking about ice cream, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine you go to an ice cream store and all it sells is vanilla and chocolate. Pretty lame ice cream store. Mm -hmm. So in my backyard, there's a place called Graders. And if you ever come to Cincinnati, you got to have some. And they have amazing flavors. It's all this cool small batch stuff that they've been doing since like the 1890s. So it's night and day to just have two crappy flavors or a hundred amazing flavors, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just bringing better choices to light. It's not being creepy and mind manipulation or stuff like that. So don't get the wrong idea. Well, infographics kind of accentuates uh, a couple of senses, right? It's you're reading something, but it's somewhat like a maze, uh, if you will. That kind of draws you into more of a story. Is that what your attraction was or and that was your yes. sweet spot? Yes. And um, um, let me retool what you just said. We assume that people read on the Internet. Mm -hmm. We are wrong in that assumption. People do not read on the internet. They do a different kind of activity. Jacob Nielsen, about 30 years ago, boy, I sound like an old guy saying that now, something like 25, 30 years ago, said that people don't read when it comes to the internet. They actually do a visual process called chunking. Brain and your eyes are darting around looking for visual patterns. Where mm -hmm. are their visual separators? What is it that I should focus on? So if your brain is in panic mode, like, oh my gosh, I don't have all day. Like, what do I have to do? Should I focus on this or not? 
Should I throw it away or not? So when you're looking at an infographic, typically you look at the header, you fly through all of it. Hopefully a couple things catch your fancy. Then you go back to the top and you sort of read it a little bit slower. What you said is correct. And the maze part of it is correct, but it's bringing people through that maze and helping them through that maze or a phrase that I like to call it going the distance. So going the distance means every section that you're scrolling through, is there something interesting enough there to keep and hold your attention? First, it's attention, right? And this is something I was talking about yesterday that I think is kind of carrying over in society and why, to me, infographics kind of simplifies things to some extent. The guy said things are understood in chunks, right? So you take that and put that into society today, because I think this happens a lot, people will, you know, take a thing in a chunk, right? And then have a conversation with somebody else that maybe took the same chunk, right? And they think they're having the same conversation, but their conversation is different. And they don't recognize that they're talking about two different things. So then the communication becomes starts to become obsolete. How do we get people to... Think about that, because I think that's a big deal. Yeah, um, this is very interesting. So um, several days ago, last week, I actually was guest lecturing for a buddy of mine who is a public relations professor over at USC for the School of Journalism. And I actually got a question from one of the students that is sort of like the point that you're making. So she was saying, what do you think of these Instagram infographics things And the way she was asking it, you could tell she didn't really like them. And I said, a lot of times you can't trust them because just like what you said, John, people are taking a snippet. They're taking a short and they're just using it as armor or ammunition for whatever their argument is that they're going to pummel you with. And I said, to properly explain something, you need to have enough of a background. So if I'm going to explain something that you don't know anything about, like something in my religion and maybe you're not studied in it or something like that. If you don't know all the words and you don't know the lexicon, you don't know the customs, you don't know the mores, how on earth can we have the same conversation? I might as well be speaking in ancient Greek, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. So first we have to structure the argument. So first we have to, you know, lay out the room and then we need to put in the furniture. And once we kind of have like a common understanding of how the story works, then we can get into it. So I said, just having small snippets of stuff without being able to explain how this goes through from an emotional, rational, data-driven, story-driven perspective, you're completely missing the point. And then people are just going to cherry pick the things that they want to argue with other people about. And that's just not how the world works. And that's, and that's how people live their lives. They live, they never, I say you can find the answers to anything in the foundation. So if you want to discuss something with a guy like Brian Wallace, you need to understand the foundation or you're not having the right discussion, right? And you can see that play out culturally. When I used to bartend uh, at this country club back in the day, you know, there were there were Serbian guys there, there were Haitian guys there, there were Mexican guys there, and they would all three get in an argument, right? And be think they were arguing about the same thing, but one had one narrative, another had another narrative, another had another narrative, right? Because culturally they understood things differently. So their communication, I believe, guys, you're not even talking about the same thing and why are you mad at each other, right? So it's a very similar process that we need to think about, you know? Yeah. So when you got into this infographic world, being an entrepreneur, 
how did you make this a grand business? Because I, you know, it's a very limited space, right? A very hard space to break into. So folks, I think what John is saying, did you lose your mind, kid? You're trying to sell <laughs> something that doesn't exist to the world. What kind of drug were you on that day? Backing up a second, what this actually meant was when I was doing all sorts of social media services to places that I was already working for, I basically needed to say, I don't want to do this anymore, client XYZ123. I only want to do this stuff. What is it I want to do? Oh, you've never heard of it? It's okay. I think this is going to be the future. So I'm like looking into this crystal ball of something. I saw what a better way it was to communicate than just posting something on Twitter or writing a blog post. It seemed like it was its own medium. And I mean, I can't say that I knew it was going to work. That's ridiculous. But I felt like I had enough insight and enough wisdom over time and intuition that it very likely looked like a thing that would work. So I went to regular clients that we already had a good relationship with. And I said, this is the new thing. We are pioneering it. We think it's going to be successful. Take a chance on us. We haven't steered you wrong before. So it wasn't that I just, you know, threw my business in the garbage, but we did completely revolve to a new thing. So tell us a little bit about some of the clients you've garnered in this process. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people don't really understand success. A lot of people think if I get this one big break, I'm going to be famous and it's going to be amazing. If I'm on this one stage, I'm on this one show, I get this one deal and my life is set. And like, that is absolutely not how success works. You usually are standing on a mountain of failures, right? And, and there's just a lot of incremental progress along the way. A few that I think were really interesting and are probably worth mentioning here. Uh, one happened a few years in where there was a painting company and they came to us and they said, you're really great at these infographics and making a, a big deal. Do it for us. Paint? Really? Like, isn't paint boring? Have you ever heard like the phrase like watching paint dry? Doesn't really inspire confidence as being like a, a cool hotshot sort of industry, right? But we ended up doing a piece about the psychology of color that went so viral and was featured by like every kind of like real estate, color consulting. I know like National Geographic picked it up. It was like, it was absurd. It had so much attention and virality and social and everything that I remember the same week that came out, Google and Adobe found us and hired us on the spot. Okay, yeah, like that was, you know, kind of a, a moment. That was really interesting. Let me just dig into that a little bit. When, sure. we talk, when we talk about simplifying things, simplifying life, simplifying communication. When you did this study of colors, right? When you go to every small town in America, yep. you pull up and you see fast food chains and you see reds, you see yellow, you see certain types of colors, right? Because I've mentioned this to you, go back to the caveman days, you know, cavemen studied animals to see what they ate to determine what was they could eat, right? right. What, what did you learn or what was your learning process in the color study? So the thing that I really enjoy about that work in particular, and I reference it a lot, is you can change the way somebody thinks in one sitting. That's what I learned. Over and above what I learned about color. So imagine, if you will, a person in general, just a, a random person on the internet, let's say in America, they have 10, 12, 15 different independent sittings 
at the internet. Maybe they're commuting, maybe they're just getting into the office, maybe they're having coffee, lunch, chilling out in the afternoon, riding home somewhere go before they go to that. All these different moments in time that they have access to the internet and they're just checking out different things of interest. So they go to their favorite blog, social media site, news site, whatever, and they come across this thing. Now, they are not interior decorators, they don't understand color theory, but they live somewhere and they like living in a place that looks good. So then they're looking at this thing and they're like, wow, this is visually stunning. And I don't really know a lot about the psychology of color. But as I read on and on, now I've educated the person without making it a giant advertisement. Now they know here is a company that helps paint houses or businesses that since they educated me and gave me a gift, feel more informed to make better decisions. And I would probably go with them. So you go from somebody with like no real opinion about a subject, getting it at least an elementary level of expertise, which is kind of a big deal. So I, I think that was like the biggest thing that I learned that you really can influence opinion in a relatively short form. And we've done that several times over with different kinds of projects. There was a company and still is, there's a company by the name of WordStream, which um, since we started working with them, they eventually got acquired by Gannett, same place that owns USA Today for something like $200 million, something like that. We did a lot of their instrumental work back in the day. And the first, we did several, quite a number of things with them. The two that we were the most well-known for was telling the story of how Google makes money, which was a real crowd pleaser. Everybody found it really interesting. And then WordStream kind of helped um, pinpoint more of a call to action because they're the tools that you would use to do Google ads and stuff like that, right? So first, kind of explaining how Google makes money. Oh, most of it's advertising. What are some interesting points about it? And bringing it further down. The other thing that we did that was super interesting, we released a piece of research and infographic content talking about the maturity models of Google AdWords and the Facebook ad system. Now, this is already a while ago, but when Facebook was IPOing, their ad system was not very good. So basically in our research, we were basically saying, Google, good, Facebook, terrible. And mm -hmm. it went insane. It was a media frenzy and like gigantic Fortune 500 companies like pulled their budgets out of Facebook. And if you actually look at like Facebook's IPO day, um, I think this project sort of ruined Facebook's IPO. They did okay after that. And I don't, I don't think they held a grudge on us and we weren't being like intentionally mean to them, but it's just, it's amazing. Like some of the unintended consequences that you can have of how far and wide and influential this kind of stuff can go. I have another one that is a, another quite a favorite. If you'd like to hear another one. Yeah, let's hear another one. I'm going to pick on this one since you're wearing the sports cap. So once upon a time, baseball changed the way baseball thought about itself. Baseball used to just be, this person looks like they're going to be the part, so we're going to take a chance on them and not really study the numbers and the data science, right? Mm -hmm. And once upon a time, there was a theory, I think it goes all the way back to the 70s, it's all statistics and stuff that a lot of guys call money ball. These days, the interdiscipline of sports and statistics, sabermetrics, all these guys just have all sorts of ridiculous mathematical models, and eventually teams started adopting it. And teams that would never win the World Series suddenly started winning the World Series, not doing it. Then as time went on, basically every Major League Baseball team, these departments. And then it slowly started to roll out to other sports. Soccer eventually picked it up. Basketball in particular was very slow to it. So once upon a time, a player's agent reached out to us and said, this guy's like the best kept secret and he's about to get a bad contract. Go do your thing and make this happen and get him a great contract. And we're like, 
okay, I mean, we haven't done that before, but I don't see why we can't give it a shot. And we did. We explained that there was a great paradigm shift happening in the world of basketball that had already taken place in baseball. Case in point, we explained the case, a famous guy now on the 76ers by the name of Tobias Harris. And if you're into Netflix, um, Adam Sandler's new flick, The Hustle, he's like one of the main characters in it. And he's now one of the highest paid players ever. We got him his initial $64 million deal from it by changing the way the sport thought about itself. And when you say that, is that, you know, is that coming up with an avatar that's the perfect basketball player? And you take elements of that avatar and see how many pieces of those elements fit with a player? That's part of it. But I would say there's a crown that sits on top of everything you said. Before we look at the perfect avatar of a player, we better explain the industry, and then we talk about the player. Gotcha. We're saying there is a problem, there's an inherent issue in the way basketball thinks about itself today. You know, I think about full functionality when you get, when I, well, my process, I think, is linear to life, and this is where you get to your, you get to your position of full functionality. You have, <clears throat> like, doing these infographics, do you have, like, a top 10, like, all right, here's three fonts that we always use, here's colors that we always use. Obviously, you have to plug that into the demo graphics of the business or whatever it is. Have you developed that type of, uh, I guess, is it foresight that you can see before a project comes in? Yes. I wouldn't say it exactly the way you said it, but I would say let's work on intuition here. So when you've done something really at an elite level for a decade and a half, you learn a lot through the years. You have a lot of intuition. So We've spent enough time doing this to understand what the media likes, what the press likes, what gets people to say, I like this. And a lot of times they can't even put it into words and explain it. So through time, I wouldn't say we always use this font and this color and we're successful. I think that those are just raw materials that wouldn't make sense unless you plugged in a lot of other information to that kind of equation, if that makes sense. After this experience in your life, you're a family man. I mean, you have two, what, two kids? Several times more than that. Six. Six? Wow. I didn't know you had six. Wow. Where, all, where are they at? Are they hiding? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Six have, kids. How, what are the ages? Yeah. So I have a, an adult grown up who already is an adult in Louisville. I have four teenage boys and a little 11-year-old girl. Nice. Nice. So... You know, you have a big family. I didn't realize you had six. I thought it was like two or three. Um, you have a big family. What is your passion? What's your passion now for Brian Wallace? What is Brian Wallace, obviously, with your experience, and what are you trying to do for the world? What do you? What, what's your next three years, four years, five years of success? Yeah, I want to travel more. I want to explore more. Um, I want to see what that looks like. I have a book in mind and kind of a book in my head on the way people understand influence because I think people sometimes don't necessarily like an infographic. So somebody has a bad experience with a terrible infographic that they make themselves and therefore all infographics are bad. What does that mean? So you had rotten milk, so all food is bad. Like what kind of idiotic argument? Don't even get me started. But let's just say some people love the medium, some people hate the medium, Different people have a million opinions. You ask 100 people, you get like a 1,000 opinions, right? So beyond just this as a medium, I have a lot of other things to say in terms of how influence works. And I think people just don't understand it, right? So I think one of the biggest things with all of this that people don't talk about is generosity. If you can't be generous to people, 
should they listen to you? Like people like Zig Ziglar a generation ago, they would tell you that like nobody cares about what you know until you show that you care about them, right? So we spent a lot of time and we could trust each other because we had that kind of conversation. Sometimes I get myself in trouble because I'm pretty, you know, black or white. It's either this or that, you know, and yeah. a lot of times I don't. Thank you, John. Don't worry. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, I don't have a lot of bedside manner. I just tell people like it is. And sometimes I feel like. Well, that's why you get the honorary New York hat. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like people don't like the truth today. Too bad. Right? Is that what you're speaking to? You know, people don't like the truth about themselves. Is that what you're speaking to? We want to open up that understanding more. Truth is part of it. But what I'm talking about is I think there is a blueprint for understanding how true influence works. So I actually have a word that I like better than influence because when people hear the word influence, they hear influencers and people who pay for verification on social media and the fire festival. We all saw how great that worked out. Right? So I like the word renown. So what does it mean to be a person of renown, right? So mm -hmm. people hold you in a high regard and they can count on you or trust you to come through for services, for introductions, whatever it is. You know, if everything in the world hits the fan, everybody wants to go contact you because you seem to have it going on. If people in your industry are around you, you know, represent what you're speaking about, if you can be that person. Is that what you're saying? Does that make sense? I think so. I think part of this ability to influence is to be very self-aware. I think if you don't understand who you are and what your place is in the world, how are you supposed to really help everybody if you don't have it figured out? The world's kind of financially collapsing at the moment. So I have a theory about this. It's not like a doomsday theory, don't worry. Like it's not like, this isn't like a prepper podcast or something. I'm a regular guy. And I'm not being pessimistic, but there's sort of a lot of financial decline happening right now. So part of why it's good to be influential or have renown and have a brand and have a name and have a clearly defined niche that people can see you have mastery of. When there's panic in the markets, people are panicked. Do people make good decisions when there's panic going on? Of course not. They're fleeing. Their fight or flight takes over and they're paralyzed in a lot of sense of making good, proper decisions. So in down markets or chaotic markets, like I like to say, people who have clearly defined specialties uh, usually do better because, and I'm not wishing for world financial collapse, but I'm saying if you have something that you're really good at, a clearly defined product, a clearly defined service, right now, I mean, I'm, I don't know how tired I look to you, but I'm pretty exhausted from how many places I'm talking to across the globe that desperately need help and strategy and results now, right? Because as people, as companies are laying off people and shrinking budgets, they have to do more with less. That's the name of the game right now. So keeping up with demand uh, is pretty much all I can do. Like a lot of people have noticed I've been a lot quieter on social. And I said, uh, hello, like half the month off for the Jewish holidays and all hands on deck trying to catch up for the moments that I'm back online and then just the sheer amount of workload. So I don't really have all day to post about a bunch of things on social media. What's the point? I, I'm not here to just win a popularity contest or something. People get obsessed with like the number of likes and all this kind of stuff. And it's very poisonous. Well, I think we, and we discussed this in Cleveland. It's, uh, I think we yeah. kind of hit a, we've hit a ceiling and I think we need a reset. You need to think about that. 
Think about content. Think about how you communicate. Do you foresee a specific uh, situation in your mind about uh, the economy? That it's going down? Is there a sector that it's, you think it will affect more? Do you think, uh, you know, a lot, what... of se- a lot of sectors are going to get hit in the undertow. I mean, if you think about like the housing market collapse, if you think about the dot-com boom, the problem when you have massive down cycles is that a lot of good industries and a lot of good companies get hit at the same time. That being said, I think there's plenty of really strong sectors that are usually pretty recession-proof. Like things that have to do with your pets do tremendously well. The world could be coming to an end. You might not go to Hawaii, but you're not throwing Fido at the door and you're still going to feed them. Right. Like it's it's crazy. Like some things are sort of recession proof. Or I would expect like everybody that does like wine and spirits whenever there's down cycles. Well, if you lost your job, you sure probably want to drink about it. Right. Yeah. So there's things like that that do well. I predict that cybersecurity will do really well because a lot of wars are not fought and won with bullets and drones. But there's a lot of cyber activity that's pretty wild right now. Um, cannabis is a pretty strong sector. Uh, jury's still out on crypto. Depends who you ask. So plenty of stuff is still going strong. Higher ed is incredibly strong right now, even though it's kind of fallen off a little bit in terms of registrations. But in terms of like micro-credentialing and online counterparts to education, have always been historically strong. To name well, a few. Yeah. Well, I know you're tired, man. I- it's a great, some great, some great insight as always. But I do want to get your opinion on one thing before we get off here. We've been talking about fifty-four minutes. You you mentioned crypto and the, the new. I guess he's called the president in the UK. Talked about he wants to dive deep and, and make uh, the UK a hub for crypto, right? But he. Well, wants I, mean, I think his predecessor, who uh, lasted less time than a head of lettuce. <laughs> decided to like ruin the tax structure and everybody's like, we don't even care about politics. You're going to hit our wallet like that. Get out of here. So I think, um, and I actually hear what he said about crypto. But he wants to, he wants to try to run crypto through the centralized bank. Is that possible? Can that happen? I think hardcore crypto people would probably super hate everything that you just said there. Because the point of crypto is to take the power away from the centralized powers and to decentralize it. So to mm-hmm. just say, we're going to decentralize everything and down with this and that, eh, whatever, like, we'll just have the government run it. What is it actually doing that the pound isn't doing? Like, I don't really understand. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't get that either. I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Locales, municipalities and countries that have been trying to do this. I don't want to go on and on about this for hours, but so I have the opinion that before we go like total crazy anarchy and just replace all of the world structure, you have to kind of move crypto into the masses and the mainstream, and you still have to have some levels of centralization with what people are comfortable with. I don't think we've seen a lot of good uses for crypto and blockchain yet. There's been plenty of schemes and scams and horrible things that have happened, Mm -hmm. but show me something that it's done that all the other technologies before it haven't done. Mm -hmm. I'll sit here and wait. And then people say, well, peer-to-peer money transfers. I'm like, okay, do you not have PayPal or Venmo or Zelle or Chase QuickPay? Like nobody cares about that. If I have the cash app and I send it directly to you, do I know how the SWIFT networks and the central banks work? Like, humans don't understand the financial system that all this is predicated on. 
So we don't, as individuals, care how all this stuff works. Now, if we're unbanked or something, okay, maybe that's a good thing. Uh, transfer fees, maybe that's a good thing. Um, it's supposed to decentralize wealth in a certain sense. I have a particular strategy when it comes to a lot of crypto. So I look at a lot of crypto, and I'm not like anti-crypto, by the way. There's plenty of projects that I think are quite innovative and interesting, but I just think a lot of times we're not quite there yet. I look at it as we're still kind of in the er very early days gold rush, and I like to sell jeans and pickaxes to the prospectors rather than go for broke and bet the farm and have all the kids out on the street. Jeans and picks that. Jeans and picks. Pickaxes. <laughs> pickaxes, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, like I said, great insight from Brian Wallace, uh, CEO and founder of Now Sourcing. I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it, man. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.